Welcome to issue 3 of the Attention Span Newsletter by me, Janan Marashligil. I'm a writer, a literary translator, an artist and a curator of cultural programs based in Amsterdam. Every other week, I take the time to reflect and offer a glimpse of how I see the world through the lens of culture, art, translation, poetry and literature. Each issue has a short essay, a nerdy look at translation, a page from one of my notebooks, a list of things to read, watch or listen to. And for those of you who prefer the audio experience, welcome to the podcast version of the Attention Span, where I am reading the newsletter to you. And I also invite you, if you can, to support my work via Patreon, via patreon.com slash the attention span. Thank you so much for your presence and attention. The essay. The possibility of an encounter. Vous cherchez Beckett? The keeper in the Montparnasse cemetery asked if I was looking for Beckett. I answered yes. Je me disais bien, dans cette allée, c'est le plus connu. Vous êtes passé devant. Il est là. He said pointing me to Beckett, who was the most famous of all the departed buried in this alley. I had walked past without seeing him. C'est parce qu'il y a des fleurs devant. Beckett was hiding behind the flowers. I thanked the cemetery keeper and approached the tomb, touched it, as well as the flowers. I was on my way to the city of Tours, via Paris, and had to change trains in Montparnasse. I couldn't think of any better way to spend the couple of free hours I had than to walk to the cemetery to see Samuel Beckett. Earlier in the busy metro, a woman I had given my seat to insisted that I return next to her the moment the seat on her side got free again. She then offered me some chocolate. It was one of those with fruit inside, which I usually don't like. But I obliged. I was moved by her kindness. The dark chocolate with orange inside even tasted sweet. We talked from Les Halles to Odéon. She said that she was on her way to the dentist, who was getting richer every time she went to see him to get a tooth fixed. No wonder he could afford an office in Saint-Germain-des-Prés, she added. Next to all the fancy publishers, many of the writers and translators I love have no access to, I thought. She asked if I liked the chocolate. I nodded. She stepped out at Odéon, waved me goodbye from the door. I watched her frail body wrapped in an electric blue puffy jacket as she disappeared behind the crowd. She was carrying a sense of bitterness mixed with joy, just like the chocolate we shared. I've been thinking about these encounters a lot recently especially in the light of conversations I had with people I work with or befriend, as well as things I read on the state of culture in the current socioeconomic, political and cultural contexts. 
posts from fellow artists, writers, and cultural program makers on creating in times when public funding becomes scarcer and in some places is even non-existent if your politics don't align with those of the government. Nobody creates nor engages with artistic content in a vacuum. I'm interested in exploring what it means when we create, whether we write, make art or films, or we open (laughs) or close the gates of these creations to meet with people. What happens when our role is one of a so-called gatekeeper, that is, when we get power in the cultural hierarchy to make space for works to be experienced by a public? We are often pushed in one way or another to put the people we define as audiences in certain boxes. Age, cultural affinities, communities, interests, geographic reach, education, etc. These categories in turn define how artistic creations of any kind are being presented and made accessible. But who am I to decide if the cemetery worker would go to see a play by Beckett or not, for instance? Or if the woman in the metro would see an exhibition or attend a literary talk? Regardless of who we are, how much we earn, what our understanding and expectations are from culture with a capital C, don't we all have a right to access it without financial, physical, or psychological obstacles? And what is culture? To me, the encounters I described earlier are part of culture, and maybe turning them into this newsletter makes them indeed a piece of reflection and imagination that is part of my writing practice, which we may file under art or literature. But beyond that, it is also a part of my understanding of what has been coined by many cultural organizations as audience development, an ugly vocabulary which has commodified connection between art and people, just like art in general is being commodified at a scary pace even in countries where public funding was always supposed to allow experimentation and creativity outside of formats dictated by platforms of promotion and presentation. A recent cry out against such commodification came from this year's Palme d'Or winner, Justine Trier, who, after her thank yous, mentioned the protest movements against the pension reforms in France and how it was denied and suppressed in a shocking manner, linking it to how this kind of power was also present in different areas, such as the film industry, and how such practices led to a commodification of culture. Two years ago, from another angle, Martin Scorsese had highlighted how problematic the commodification of cinema was in an essay published in Harper's Bazaar. Trier's statement didn't surprise me one bit. I keep seeing this happening over and over across sectors. Literature is no different, for instance. And the less there is space for makers to create freely, the less incentive there will also be to connect these works to people, to feel, enjoy, reflect, think, and more. 
The many reactions against Justine Triest started with France culture minister Rima Abdul-Malak, who reacted on Twitter that she was flabbergasted by how unfair Triest's speech was, adding that, and I quote, This film wouldn't have seen the light of day without our French model of film financing, which allows for a unique diversity in the world. Let's not forget it. End quote. This proved exactly Trier's point about power. And it's a worrying state culture has been pushed into by neoliberal governance in many countries. What do we do if there is no money to fund all sorts of arts and culture? And how are the people who create the connections between works of art and their audiences supposed to work if the only way we measure quote-unquote success is through numbers? Audience numbers online and in real life, which links to higher financial gain. I don't want to think about how many people will show up at an event or how much money we will earn when I curate a cultural program or when I write or make art. I want to focus on the possibility of an encounter. The magic that will happen between people when they engage with one another through the imagination of someone who happened to make something beautiful. To taste the bitterness of fruit mixed with dark chocolate and still feel, feel you can feel someone else's existence and reality even for a short instant. None of these negate the need to connect with more people and to fill our theaters, libraries, and exhibition halls with as many as possible. The main difference, though, is the incentive with which we create and that should never be rooted on any number. Here are some thoughts on translation. The following ones are part of an essay I'm working on for a Rutledge publication on music and migration, and this book will be published in 2024. In one of his interviews, Jacques Brel talks about the experience of giving a concert in Azerbaijan, singing in French, and he says, in front of a guy who doesn't understand a word, yet a couple of tears fill his eyes. You can be certain that for at least 20 seconds, he stopped thinking about himself. This audience member's emotion described by Brel is similar to an experience I had when I visited Cairo in 2019, listening to a song in Arabic called Sukun, which means stillness, by Dina El-Wadidi. It is an extraordinary emotion to feel you belong in a language you do not understand. A connection made possible by music, and in this case, my understanding of a few words in the lyrics, which are shared in my language of birth, such as the title of the song, Sukun, which in Turkish is Sukunet. Listening to this song allowed me to be carried away, forgetting myself, that is, my need to understand everything and accept 
the language as it came to me, to connect, rather than feel alienated. A necessary space for anyone suspended between languages and cultures by the reductionist systems we live in. And now a few tips of what I'm listening to, watching, reading, and I will link to all of these in the show notes. Private Passions with Kit Deval on BBC3. I loved listening to writer Kit Deval sharing these musical moments from the classical repertoire and telling stories about her life and writing. And my heart melted when I heard her first choice, Sergei Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minors, the first movement. But I will let you discover the track list for yourselves. Oh, and if you are in Amsterdam on 14, 15, 16 September, Kit de Waal is coming to the Read My World Festival. Watch. Hmm. So, No Dogs or Italians Allowed by Alain Huguetto. It's a superb animation film that tells the story of migration of an Italian family from northern Italy to France in the beginning of the 20th century through the eyes of the grandson, the filmmaker himself. I really love animation films in general. This format really allows, just like in comics, to identify with the characters and the story in a more direct way than with films with the actors are, where the actors are real people. And something to read. To link to my film suggestions, I'll mention Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics from 1993. Comic scholars and aficionados out there, my apologies, I know we all have it in our libraries already, but I also am sure many of you may not have come across this scholarly book written in the format of a comic. Not yet. <laughs> so... If you would like to understand comics and what I meant about connecting to characters by identifying more directly with them if they're drawn or made of papier-mâché like in Ugetto's film, then I do recommend you uh, Scott McCloud's book. And I will, of course, link to all of these in the show notes. last but not least, a page from one of my notebooks. So I have selected this notebook uh, from 2018 or 19, I believe. And I have drawn some lines and written some words, uh, which I called migraine lines. And migraines have been a part of my life for two decades now. I've learned to see the triggers and even manage them a little, but they still happen. And these pages I'm sharing, there are just some lines there that I have made during a migraine attack. So I'm actually fascinated very often at how one becomes creative when physically suffering. And I have to say, I do love these pages. They really make me remember that I'm more than my migraines, even when they hit hard and debilitate me. And that's it for issue three of the Attention Span newsletter. Thank you so much for your care, your attention, for following my work. 
remember, if you have the means, if you would like to, I also have a Patreon where you can support me for three euros a month. I will link to all all the links I mentioned in this uh, podcast in the show notes. In the meantime, take care of yourselves, and I will speak to you again in two weeks. Bye.